Jeff. It is the last day of 2020. It's our last episode of the year. I don't know. When are we going to start our new season two? Is that with the new year or is that after basketball season is over since that's kind of when we started last year? Is it, do we roll with the academic, you know, the NCAA year, I think is the calendar we got to work on. Um, I think it is. I think that is what we do. So we're, we're still not to year two. Don't mistake that to mean that we're not going to have a weekly episode. We're still no. doing that. Yeah. But yeah, when do we, when do we officially hit our one year anniversary or whatever? It, it's sometime in March. Cause that's when we started, but that was kind of after everything got shut down is one. Was it in March? Have we been doing this that long? Yeah. It's been a long while, but it's, so I, you know, we have that, but I think it's also, we got to, you know, we got to work and probably season one will be a little bit longer and we got to go to like, till baseball season wraps up. Once yeah. the back, once the back cats are done, then we can roll over into, okay, let's start looking forward to, this is officially 2021. Okay. Well, I could get on board with that. Um, but so what do you, do you have any big new year's plans tonight? I guess I know you did tell me that we have a hard stop on this episode because you got to start cooking. So what's on the menu? Well, my mom, uh, so she had COVID a couple, three weeks ago and they were on my, my parents were on the tail end of their quarantine on Christmas. And so we didn't get to do Christmas with the, with my parents. Uh, I don't have a big family for anybody who's freaking out about any gatherings with my family. It's just me and my sister. And so anyway, um, because we didn't get to do Christmas, then everything has been, they're fine now. Everybody's tested negative, all that stuff. So we're going to do our little Christmas Eve to get, or today on New Year's Eve. That's it though. I mean, that's okay. really my plan. I'll cook some wings. We're making Super Bowl food. Okay. And, and so I'll make some wings. I do have, uh, I mean, it's almost because it's the end of the year, it feels like an appropriate time to reflect back on like quarantine kitchen type stuff it has been a while i i tweeted about this earlier i don't know if you and i have talked about this but the jerky gun did you see these tweets oh yeah i saw that you did get a jerky gun a jerky gun so for those of you don't know what this is and i didn't know what it was until somebody sent me a tiktok uh it looks like it, it operates basically like a caulking gun like it's just a tube and then it has something that you know pushes stuff out of the tube is all in a gun form it makes jerky like strips out of ground beef so instead of having to get an eye of round roast and go through and slice it and then brine it you know and do all the seasoning overnight and then cook it you can make jerky really from start to finish in like two and a half three hours okay. you can go longer than that and it's you know probably a little bit better but it was really good. I was really surprised. So a couple and what did I get? Two and a half pounds of ground beef, jerky seasoning. So I, I have jerky seasoning packs. LEM is a great jerky brand. I just use their original seasoning and then added a few things like chili pepper flakes and, and uh, some Worcestershire sauce and things like that. So just a couple of other things to give it a little bit of flavor into two and a half pounds of ground beef and then mixed it all up. And then you just stuff this jerky gun full squirt it out which sounds disgusting but squirt out your ground beef onto these jerky racks and i smoked it for a few hours so that i could get some smoke flavor but you could do this on a dehydrator or anything you know anything else that you could make jerky on dude i was shocked like it was i i would have had no way of knowing that it was ground beef if it wouldn't have been me who put it together it was really good 
and it, it was probably more like you know like a jack links meat stick right? Like the right. individually wrapped sticks versus like a bag of jerky. Or like they have like the tender bites or whatever that are. Yeah, whatever they are. So which I almost like, prefer those because I I like jerky, but I hate when it's like I'm gnawing on some right. leather and it gets stuck in between your teeth. Oh yeah. And so this was, this was closer to that beef stick. I think if, I mean, it was the first time I'd used the gun. And so I was like kind of all over the place with how thick and how thin it was. It wasn't very consistent as I was figuring out how to use it. But on my last, my last uh, sheet of jerky, I did three sheets. The last one, I started to figure it out a little bit and I was able to make it consistently thin and it tasted like jerky. Like I was just, I was shocked. It was ground beef. And so now you can make five pounds of jerky for like 20 bucks, right? Like the price of lean ground beef versus think about that. I mean, how much is a bag of like decent jerky? It's, it's like $16 for a 12 yeah. ounce or something crazy. Six like jerky is expensive. Yeah. And so you can get five pounds and save yourself 80 bucks by buying an LEM jerky gun. It costs 20 bucks off of Amazon. Took a few weeks to get here. It was awesome. So that was my 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 homage to quarantine kitchen, the LEM jerky gun. If you like jerky, if you have a smoker or a dehydrator, and you have made jerky in the past, try you can this. Make, I've made jerky in an oven before. I yeah, mean, you, you can make jerky any... in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if you have made jerky and you're interested in jerky, don't be afraid of this thing. It's gross. I, I, there is something that is disgusting about pushing out like chunks of ground beef it looks like like you're making mcdonald's chicken nuggets like it's that pasty almost looking gross as it comes out of this gun so it's kind of kind of weird but other than that there's no complaints and it tasted really good i was surprised yeah, i'm looking and i mean okay the jerky gun it's on amazon it's Oh, there's like a deluxe one or a normal yeah, one. Yeah, there's a jerky cannon. The only difference is one of them holds three, I think three quarter pounds, and the other one's a pound and a half. But like the smaller one, it just means you load it up twice as much, but it really doesn't matter. Like okay, it's so the exact it's same. 20 bucks. It's not, yeah. not bad at all. So okay. I I I could not recommend it more. Like I was really, really surprised at how good it was. Okay, then well, I might have to go get me one of these and make me some jerky and see what we can get. Um, but we do have obviously lots of news to jump into, and this is going to be our kind of year review and our awards uh, that we're going to give out. And I don't know if there's like the Oscars, the Tonys, you know, diff these different award shows. What, what are we calling this? Are we calling these the Givums? Are they the Brigham Awards? Are they the Coogies? I think the Coogies, we love Bean Mace. I don't know if Bean listens to the show or not, but Bean Mace has a, if you don't know who Bean Mace is, he's on Twitter, at Bean Mace. Funny story about Bean. Uh, I was watching, let's see, I guess it would have been the, whatever Jimmer year was, the 2010 Mountain West Conference Tournament. And I was watching it on TV. I had never met Bean. I had no idea who Bean was. But he flashed on the screen like going to a commercial break he was on the front row at the mountain west conference tournament and i paused it and i said to my dad I said dad that's the kind of byu fans we need more of and it's bean he was covered in tattoos he has this big red beard it's like we need more byu fans like that guy lo and behold it was bean mace and he is a legendary byu fan and bean has a saying 
that anytime BYU is about to play, he projects, he predicts whatever, that BYU is going to win by 90, and then he says, let's go Cougies. So in honor or, or of Or Cougies by 90. Or, or Cougies some, something, yeah. Some variant of that. Yep. So in honor of being, it's the Cougies, the Cougie Awards. The 2020 Cougies. I like it. Okay, so here we are. I feel like, well, this is going to be the football Cougies. Maybe next week we may have to jump even further back and give just back to basketball and just really the whole year and then we'll get back on track and do our uh you know we'll get back so or maybe this is just our this is our 2020 mid-season cookies because then we'll have basketball at the end of season one of give them hell brigham as basketball and baseball wrap up in the spring sports and the winter sports so um we are going to get into the cookies today but first off obviously i'm sure everyone has seen by now um dax milne and brady christensen have both officially declared for the draft uh, presumably Zach Wilson will also be declaring though his announcement is not official. Uh, so I guess, what do we think about that? Or where do you think they will go? Obviously everyone knows that Zach's probably going to go in the top 10, possibly the top five. I think Brady Christensen is probably looking at like a late two solid third rounder is where he's most likely to go. And Milne is kind of all over the board. Like some people have said he could go as high as three. I don't know that I quite see that. Um, it really depends on, his measurables and what he does at the combine, if the combine happens or at his pro day, whenever he, you know, gets officially measured in things and how he puts up. But it's, I think he's probably looking at a solid, like maybe like a fifth or sixth round pick, but he could move up or could slide down. It really just depends on his performance. But I think we can agree that he is not going to have as good of a year, good of a year next year as he is this year. And he needs to strike while the iron is hot. And even, I mean, because next year his production could drop, and really just because Zach will be gone, guys, scouts will not be watching as much film of Dax Milne as they are of him. Like, how many times do you see a recruit where it's like, oh, coaches, oh, I went to go scout this kid, and then I saw someone else pop off the page, or I, you know, saw someone else on the film, whatever, when I was watching this kid's game. It's very similar with Dax Milne, where every team is going to be scouring, like, and pouring over film of Zach Wilson. And they're going to see Dax Milne every single time there as well. So he's not going to get near, he's never going to get as much coverage and publicity and hype as he is right now. And so it makes sense for him to jump and take his shot. Yeah, I agree. Um, Dax is interesting, man. Like nobody, I, I think I can say this, and I think this is accurate. Nobody has been on the back, the Dax Milne bandwagon longer than I have. Like I have been a fan forever. And even with that, man, I, I struggle placing where exactly he's going to get drafted. I agree with everything that you said that I, there's nothing that can happen next year that's going to increase his stock. Uh, maybe, I guess, if he were to put up similar numbers or better numbers with another quarterback, it kind of solidifies that, yes, this dude's legit. It wasn't just a product of a top 10 type quarterback. But even with that, I, I struggle seeing that. Honestly, I just do. And so I, I think that it's going to come down to his, his combine scores. If Dax can run into the, if he gets into the four fives, that's really got to be the goal. If he gets into the four fives in the 40, I think he gets drafted uh, fourth, fifth round. If he slips to the four sixes, I, I think he's looking at a seventh round pick or a UDFA type deal because four, six, 190 pounds, six foot. Yeah. He was like crazy productive, but there's a, a hundred million six foot 
guys that are playing college football that run in the four sixes. And that's just not going to get it done in the NFL. So which NFL player do you think he will most often be compared to? Will it be Julian Edelman or Wes Welker or Hunter Renfro or Cooper Cup or Adam <laughs> yeah, you're gonna We're going to hear about how, how crisp of a route runner he is. He's sneaky uh, athletic. He is deceptively athletic. I mean, he's a much better athlete than he gets credit for. He, you know, film junkie. Like, he's just always in the room. High-class guy. And we're going to hear all about those things. Uh, honestly, I think, I mean, race aside, like Adam Thielen is probably the best comp. Like Adam Thielen isn't the fastest guy in the world. He isn't the biggest or the strongest guy in the world, but he just gets open and has great hands. I think that's who Dak should model his game after. Uh, I had somebody on Twitter reply to me and say that Dax is a 4-4-5 guy and that he has ran as low as a 4-4-2. If Dax Milne gets into the combine or even pro day and runs a four, four, two, I will eat my shoes. Like if that's what he runs, then yeah, like he's going to go in the third round. But if he, I, that would be shocking. Like I'm expecting four, five, seven. I think he was a four, seven guy in high school. So I don't know where a four, four, two came from, but that's what somebody said. I, I just know the hell he isn't. I right. just don't see that being accurate, but I, th- I think for him to go in like the late fourth, solidly fifth round, he needs to run in the four fives. I think four, six, five is probably the number that it's, if he doesn't get at least below that, if he runs above a four, six, five, he will be an undrafted free agent. Yeah. Um, and that's, but under, and then if he's like four, five, eight to four, six, five, then he'll be maybe sneak into six or seventh. But if he does run in like the low, if he runs under a four, five, five and is like, but solidly like low four fives, then he, and obviously a lot of it too, depends on what like his three cone um, and his shuttle are. But if he hits on those, then he could definitely be a solid fourth round pick. Um, but I mean, people don't, people remember, don't like, realize Austin Collie how- was a fourth round pick. Well, right. I mean, there's a lot of really good fourth round picks as a receiver. Right. People don't realize how fast a four four is. Like, yeah. that's you're, insane. You're Tyreek Hill is literally nicknamed Cheetah, and he's like, I mean, I think the fastest he's ran is four three three, but most of the time he's like four three seven, four three eight. Like he's just the blink of an eye away from four four, and they call him Cheetah. Like, that's crazy fast, and he is well known for being one of the fastest players in the NFL and he's running mid four threes, like a four, four, two is blazing fast. I just don't think that Dax is there. I hope he does. What did, what did Austin Collie run? Do you remember? Um, Let me see. I'm going to look it up too. We're going to have this weird silence. He ran a four, five, three, and I don't think Dax is as fast as Austin was. No. And that was, Oh no, he ran a four, six, three at the combine. Oh, okay. So, so he got a four. A four okay, five, four five three was pro day. Yep, four five three was pro day. Which yeah, there's a little bit. I, I will say BYU's pro day. I was there a couple of years ago. They have invested in a ton of technology, and, and so the times that you see out of BYU's pro day today are accurate. The times that you saw out of BYU's pro day in the early to mid two thousands, eh, you could probably question the validity of those they got a little bit of a home field advantage uh but now that they they've invested in the technology believe all the times coming out of pro days now but four five three four six three at the combine 
and I, I don't know that Dax is faster than Austin Collie was. I don't think he is. Uh, but looking at who else there is to be drafted, I think, well, Chris Wilcox opted out of the bowl game. He's another guy where it just depends on how he performs. If he has the measurables, then he can sneak in late. He will definitely get an undrafted uh, free agent deal at a minimum. Um, Kyrus Tonga and Matt Bushman, I know a lot of fans think that they're both locks to be drafted. I think Bushman was iffy. And that's why he came back for this year and then now add in the injury. And I don't know, like it's going to, it really just depends on how well he moves and if he can sneak in late um, because if he just, I mean, he's coming off of a recent Achilles injury, that's hard to come back from, right? Like that's going to take some issue And Kyra Stonga. I mean, he just need he needs to put up gaudy numbers. He disappeared way too much this year when everyone expected him to dominate. And he just kind of got washed out a lot of times and it's, he, you know, has, the kind of narrative around his career is he was great as a freshman and he never really progressed a bunch. And he's, it's always, we've been hearing for the last three years now of getting weight under control and getting in shape so he can be an every down, you know, interior defensive lineman. But he, you know, that's when you're hearing the same thing three years in a row, that's a problem. And so it's, he needs to show up in incredible shape and that's going to, that's what will make or break him. Um, I, I think Bushman goes, this is a pretty weak year for tight ends coming out of college. The top is incredibly high. Kyle Pitts is unbelievable. Like he is one of the most unbelievable tight ends I've ever seen. Uh, people want to say he's more of a wide receiver, but I don't think he is. He just doesn't block a ton, but he can. He's 6'6", 240 pounds. He'll, he'll end up, by the time the combine rolls around, I bet you Kyle Pitts weighs in at like 247, close to 250. Uh, he's unbelievable. One of the best tight ends I've ever seen in college. So he's in a class of his own. Brevin Jordan at Miami is really good. Penn State's got a guy, uh, Pat Freemuth, who's pretty good. Other than that, there's not a ton of proven tight ends. Iowa State's got a guy. Wisconsin always has a guy. And, and then really Bushman is probably right there in that tight end five, six range, even with the Achilles injury. So I think... Uh, I think that Bushman probably gets drafted, I would say, late. I think if he was healthy, he's looking at a fourth-round-ish pick. I think he probably is now in the sixth round with the injury. But somebody's going to take a flyer on Bushman. I, I have zero doubt of that. Kyrus Tonga, you're, you're spot on. He just disappeared. Now, I will say this. When we've talked about this on the show, Garrett, that there were times that he, you know, from a BYU fan perspective, Tonga disappeared from games and just was not there. But when you go back and you watch the film, he just was, they schemed around it or schemed around him. Opponents schemed around him in a way that it, it did neutralize him. I mean, we saw, what was it? The Coastal Carolina game that they, they got around Tonga by just simply running outside every time. And that was what they did. Every play was an outside run and they wouldn't even block Tonga. Like he was constantly getting through and almost getting to the ball carrier. But when you're coming from that zero tech in the middle of the, you know, middle of the defensive line and they run an outside run, like that's yeah. it. And for no matter what Z- you do, you're not going to get there. For a zero tech, for people who don't know, that is head up directly over the center. And then you're going to have a one tech is the center shoulders, the two tech is the gap between the center and the guard. A three tech is the inside shoulder of the guard four head up on the guard and five, six, seven, eight, nine, all the way out. Um, so yeah, it's, there is some of that. Um, but it really just depends. I think with Bushman, it, I, 
just depends on uh, similar to Milne, where Milne needs to prove he has that he's not just deceptively athletic and is he needs to show up with the measurables. Bushman similarly needs to show like how well did his did his Achilles heal? Because if he shows up and he's gimpy and clocks like a five two, and he's slower than most offensive linemen, he's not going to get drafted, right? Like, and that's yeah, yeah, and it's that sucks because then the the injury really did completely derailed his career. But if he, you know, so it's he needs to show up and run. And I don't know how fast he is. Like, he's never looked that fast to me. But so I honestly do not know how big he is i or uh, i know how big he is he just he looks big like he's rumbling he doesn't look big like he's like oh he can move pretty i've never gotten the oh you can move good for a guy that big vibe from him he's just kind of like there when he's running downfield he does kind of look like he just is running in mud a little bit uh they say that he's like mid four sevens which at 250 pounds like that's not gonna be that's not great that's but it's what not he would bad. have to be. Yeah, that's what it would have to be. If he wanted to be a second round pick or, you know, second, early third round pick, he would need to be in the four sixes at that weight just because that's what they, you know, the NFL expects from the tight end position. Um, but it's, he's got to, to get drafted. I think he has to get back into those very low four eights or in solidly into the four sevens. And if he can do that six months after having ankle surgery, then he'll probably get drafted in there say okay we can there's something there to work with as the yep. ramp continues um so obviously this is a lot of production that needs to get replaced um we talked a lot uh, one more guy i do think chandon herring is going to sneak into the back I, i've been on this chandon herring's getting drafted bandwagon for a while and people think i'm crazy but the nfl with those late round picks they like to take that's where they take their flyers on guys who just measure the right way. Shannon Herring is a massive individual, 6'7", 310 pounds. He's, I think, and don't quote me on this, anybody, but I think I've read that he's in, like, he runs a 4'9", 40 at 310 pounds. Like, he can move. And if it's not 4'9", I can't remember what, I think that's what I've heard. I know that he is way faster that people give him credit for. He can play all five offensive line positions and he played four out of five offensive line positions this year. I think that Shannon Herring, I mean, he just has all the raw tools that uh, a team who had extra picks from trades or whatever, that's picking in the sixth, seventh round is probably going to look at a guy like Herring and say, Hey, why not? Like maybe he, we bring him in and he works with an offensive line coach for the summer and he might be able to make the 53-man roster as a utility offensive lineman. So I think Chandon Herring is another guy who is going to sneak into the back half of the draft and kind of surprise some people. Maybe I'm wrong, but I've been on this Chandon Herring bandwagon for a while, and so I need to stay on it through the end. I think he gets drafted in April. I think two of the other two guys that would come up would be, uh, I think, I don't think Isaiah Kafusi will get drafted. Um, he'll get an undrafted free agent look, um, or at least a camp invite. Uh, Troy Warner, depending on how what his measurables come again, measurables come out, which that's really the difference maker between being a sixth and seventh round pick or an undrafted free agent is how you perform in those measurables. Um, so it's you know he can sneak in, and that's something where honestly being Fred's brother will help him, and he may right. sneak in because they're like, oh well, look how he developed 
same gene pool, same family. It's his younger brother. Like someone will take a flyer on him because of that. And then Tristan Hodge, I think there's just too much of an injury history, even though the talent is there that he will probably, he will be an undrafted free agent. I think you're right. And I think you're right on Troy and Troy played safety and look, the, the TV camera just doesn't really show much of the safety. Like that's just kind of the nature of that position. Troy played safety at a very, very high level this year. He struggled a little bit when he was forced to play corner and like against uh, coastal, he was playing corner and, and it didn't work out so well. The guy's not a corner. The guy is a safety. And when he was playing safety, he played at a very high level this year. He's athletic. He's got, a lot of his athleticism back following that, that gnarly foot injury. I think that you're right. I think Troy, it, it comes down to the combine. If Troy doesn't get into the combine, I, I think he's an undrafted free agent. If the combine does throw him a bone because he's Fred's brother, whatever, I think that he gets into the combine shows NFL scouts that he's healthy once again. And I, I would be willing to put him on draft radar at that point. Um, I think he's good. And he played really, really well this year. Yeah, it's similar. He's in a similar situation with Hodge where the talent is there and they know the talent, but it's the injury history is what will knock him out. And it, and sometimes I can't be overcome. Like look at Taysom was an undrafted free agent, even though he ran a four, four, four at BYU's combat pro day because of the injuries. That's why he didn't get drafted is because you're investing in someone's body that you don't know what it's going to do. Um, so replacing these guys, I think we will get the bodies are there. It's going to be similar to this year where it's like, who's going to step up, right? Like no one, we didn't expect Neil Powell or Isaac Rex to be as good as they were this year. Like we knew that they had the talent or that they could be good and similar with Dax Milne, right? Like we knew that he could be good and he showed flashes, but who's going to step up and be the guy. And that's, I think there's body there. Um, there's bodies there that there's more depth in the program than there has been probably in the entire independence era. Um, I know the staff is working hard and the transfer portal. We saw like Gunnar Maldonado, a safety um, out of Northwestern who played with both Gunnar Romney and Jacob Conover at Chandler high school um, is into the portal and BYU extended offer to him yesterday. So it's, I think with things, the staff is going to get creative and they're going to, they know exactly where the gaps are and they will, they will find a body if they need to in the portal, especially with everyone getting a free transfer year this year um, and being immediately eligible, or it's just, you know, at some point you have to expect guys to step up. So as we get forward into the off season and start looking forward into next year, once the roster gets finalized, we can, we can kind of project that more a little bit, but I guess of, you know, of all the guys we just named who are talking or who are leaving, who we are talking about being drafted, who, do you think will be the the Dax Milne of 2021? The guy where it's like they've maybe shown some flashes but have never asserted themselves as the guy, then by the end of next season, you're going to be like, well, this dude's a baller. Um, I think that one of them, and this is- And it can be at any position. Yeah, people are hating on him because he hasn't played exceptionally well when he has played very limited reps. Uh, Braden Cosper, I, I think he's going to be very good. When I talk to people about Braden Cosper, I hear rave reviews, like absolutely rave reviews over what he is doing in practice. He is widely regarded as the receiver who has the best hands on the team, which is saying a ton. He's had a couple of drops in the action that he has played, but I think that Braden Cosper is going to surprise some people. Is he going to be Dax Milne and end up, you know, fifth on the receiving list? No, I don't think that's a fair expectation. 
But I think we're going to get to game five or six next year, and we're going to start to look at things, and we're going to be, we're going to say, holy cow, like Braden Cosper is a lot better than what we thought he was. All of the attention throughout the offseason, I promise you, is going to be about Gunnar Romney. It's going to be about Neil Pau, and it's going to be about Cody Epps. That's who everybody is going to talk about. I think that Braden Cosper is going to be able to fly under the radar a lot like how Dax Mill did, and he will play really, really well. And the fact that he has also been able to take some scout team reps and he's worked with, you know, Baylor Romney a ton, Jaron Hall a ton prior to his injury. And he's been working with Jacob Conover uh, throughout the season as Conover's been running scout team. I think there's going to be some chemistry there. And, and that, that chemistry is what made Zach Wilson and Dax Milne such a great pairing. So Braden Cosper, I think is there as one of the guys who steps up kind of out of nowhere. Um, I, I got to think about it on the defensive side of the ball. I'm curious who you think it will be on the offensive side of the ball. Who steps up? Um, I mean, we've talked, I think, I don't know if this is a cop out, um, but I think it will be, uh, I mean, I think Jacob Conover is going to win this starting position and it's going to be a similar transition from John Beck to Max Hall in terms of production. And it's obviously he will not be what Zach Wilson was this year, but you're going to be like, okay, we are totally fine with this, right? Like it's, you know, the, I think that will be offensively and then defensively um, you know, I think we're looking at, I think defensively it's, I think it's going to be Keenan Ellis. And it's he, cause he has had flashes. I think he is one of our probably was probably the best, most consistent corner play that we saw this season, but he didn't really get a lot of buzz. And even though he played a lot this year, so maybe this is also like kind of cherry picking, but it's, I think by the end of next season, people are going to realize like, Oh, Keenan Ellis, like he's a dude. And I think a lot more people talked about Michael Harper just because he was a true freshman. Um, and so, and he made a couple big plays and others like the targeting penalty, whatever. And he had a couple big hits, but I think Keenan Ellis is severely underrated on the defensive side of the ball. I, I That's fair. And I absolutely agree with that. It's tough on defense because the guys who I think are going to emerge the most are going to be the Keenan Peelys, the Peyton Wilgars. They're not Dax Milne, right? They're not flying under the radar, but I do think they'll elevate their game to a different level. Caden Hawes is going to be a trendy pick at defensive tackle this, this throughout the offseason because he's played well in the minutes that he got. Um, but by and large, Ben Bywater, I think, is a player who a good, will be healthy next year. Uh, he's very, very good and was working his way up the depth chart prior to his injury this year. And I think he hurt. I can't remember what he hurt. I think he had shoulder surgery, if I remember right. Like, uh, what is the – it's not the – the, the, the labrum is that what he tore i think he tore a labrum and, and so he had surgery there knocked him out for the year uh so it's not like anything like a knee or something that you're going to be worried about him coming back he'll be healthy he'll probably go through light spring ball but he'll be healthy by fall uh, so ben bywater could make a difference um and, and i really i don't know Caden hawes i mean like i say he is a trendy pick I like what he brought to the table. I'm really looking closely at that defensive line. We need to talk about this a little bit. There's going to be talking points throughout the offseason. And please give them hell, Brigham listeners. When you see these talking points, don't fall into this trap. But there are going to be talking points throughout the offseason that the interior of the defensive line is the weakest position group on BYU's defense. And it just isn't true. 
BYU's defense, uh, the, the scheme that BYU has to run because they play so much zone coverage is those defensive linemen, even guys like Kairos Tonga, have to play two gap. They have to. They have to be able to defend the run, stuff multiple gaps, depending on which direction the play goes. And so they're not being asked to be as explosive as what the, the casual fan wants to see. When people think of Kalani Satake's defenses, they think of Starlo Tulele just blowing up plays at Utah. But they were doing things very, very differently. Although there were some similarities in the base scheme, the actual play was very, very different because Utah was able to play so much man coverage in their defense. But BYU, you can't play man coverage if you don't have man corners and BYU just doesn't, I think Keenan Ellis could get there. Isaiah Heron has the skills to get there, but he hasn't put it together enough for me on the field to be able to trust him every down in man coverage. So BYU has to play a lot of zone and it's tough to play zone with only four defensive backs. That's why BYU scheme is so conservative because the linebackers have to drop back and play coverage because they don't have the ability to play man on the edges. So when they don't, when you can't play man, that means that your defensive line has to do more against the run. So they can't sell out in blowing up the offensive lineman in an effort to try and get into the backfield. They have to play two gaps. They have to be able to stuff and stop the run. And it's tough. It's really tough to do. And I think that BYU has more depth at defensive tackle next year than people realize. Caden Hawes will be there. Uh, Toyota Mariners back for another year. Lorenzo Fawatea will be healthy. Uh, Otunaisa Mahe should be back and should be healthy. So that gives you four guys. And, and then you're looking at people like Saleti Fevaliaki, who's 270 pounds and could still grow. He could very easily end up at the interior of the defensive line. Uh, Gabe Summers, I think, is 275, 280. He did play some of both, and he could look like a, a Logan Taele by the time next season rolls around. So there's a, there's enough bodies there that I think BYU is going to be okay at the defensive tackle position. Tui Polotu Lai uh, signed in the class of 2020. He will enroll in January. He was a gray shirt this year. He's another guy at 280, 285 pounds that he's going to be in the mix. Brooks Miley will be home from a mission. He was a monster when he signed. He, uh, when, when he got offered, he was offered, he was like 250 pounds. By the time he signed, he was 290. Like he's a beast of an inside lineman. So BYU's got guys that are going to be able to fill that defensive tackle spot. But you're not going to see those defensive tackles be explosive until BYU is able to play man coverage on a much more consistent basis. Because of that, I hope what BYU does, I don't even know what got me started on this rant, but because of that, I hope that BYU targets one or two defensive backs between now and signing day, whether that be the Gunner Maldonados out of the transfer portal, whether that be Bryson Reeves out of high school or somebody else who emerges late in the game. If BYU can play more man coverage, then the defense is going to look more aggressive, period. This is not a problem with the defensive tackles. I don't even think it's a problem with the scheme. Uh, I, I haven't talked to you about this, Garrett, and it's not on our agenda, but did you see the, the quotes from the, uh, whatever his name is, the, the Rams defensive coordinator? Uh, yes. About uh, basically let me, saying. Let me find it because I, when did we? Well, you look up the exact quote. I mean, in essence, what he was saying oh, okay. is Here we that. Go. I found it because 
I texted it to you. So said, I know that the quickest way to lose is to give up explosive plays in the passing game. Staley said, it takes a lot of four and five yard runs to add up to a 50 yard pass. If you truly believe that explosive plays are how you lose in the NFL, you really have to start it there. And so he is talking about playing a, what is a cutting edge system that's pushing the limits of defense in the NFL and about playing a playing with a light box and having your defensive line play two gaps and just really making sure that there are no big, no cheap ones over the top. Yeah. And playing coverage. And now it helps when you have Aaron Donald in the middle of your defensive line, who's unbelievable. Now I don't think BYU has Aaron Donald in the middle of their defensive line, but look at who the players are that the LA Rams are routinely targeting. It's the Jalen Ramsey's it's these corners, Akib Tlaib out of nowhere. Like they, they routinely go out and they find corners to plug into their system almost every year. And that's because the man coverage is what enables them to do that. They can put their linebackers in zone. They can do some creative things with their linebackers where they show blitz, they play coverage where they look like they're going to play cover three. And then they shift into cover two late and somebody comes off the free side. Like they can do some creative things that make it look like they're creating, like they're sending more pressure than they really are. But the reality is they're playing pretty conservative defense, just trying to limit those big plays. BYU can get there. That's what Tuiaki's goal is but it comes from being able to play better coverage in the secondary. I think BYU has made really, really significant strides in recent years, but they're not there yet. So that's what BYU has to do. So give them hell, Brigham listeners. Let us, like we're not the football savants, right? Like we're not the ones who are the smartest of the smartest people in the world, but allow us to educate you on this because this we do know without man coverage, BYU's defensive line will not change. The style of the defensive line will be exactly the same, period. If you want to see more pressure and more aggression from your defensive linemen, get better man coverage players in the secondary so that the linebackers can play a little bit more in run support and don't have to fall back and play six or seven people in zone coverage every play. Until that happens, expect the exact same results. So next time you're talking to your dad and your dad says, oh, these stupid defensive linemen, they just suck. We got to get better people there. Say, no, dad, we need a free safety. That's what we need to get. And it's always give and take, right? It's the defenses. There is no perfect defensive system, right? Because it's everything is reactionary and you have to pick your poison of what you're going to give them. And then where you're just going to say, we're going to scheme and leave this open and we're just going to expect our guys to make plays. Right. So it's not, so it's not like one is better than the other. Right. It's like, if it's stupid, but it works, it's not stupid. So push come to shove. It's keeping points off the board. Um, so let's get into the Coogies. Now we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven awards that we are going to give out and we'll run through them uh, quickly so we can get this up and be let you ring in the new year with this episode. Our unquestioned, and unanimous with two votes MVP of the year is Mr. Zachary Wilson. I think there's nothing more to say about it. We watched every game. We've seen every throw. We've written thousands and thousands of words about him. We know that he's going to make a lot of money and get a very good shot in the NFL and could very well be a franchise QB for the next decade. If all his cards go right. And it's, I mean, there isn't, there's nothing more we can say about how 
great of a season he was. And we talked a lot about this last couple of weeks of just him coming in 2017, December of 2017, after a horrendous, horrendous year, how that has completely pivoted and changed the entire trajectory of the program. So Zach Wilson is our MVP on and off the field. Uh, yeah, without question. And while I'm going to miss him on Saturdays, uh, I'll tell you where I'm really going to miss him is my page views. My page views are really, really going to miss Zach Wilson because I can write something about Zach Wilson's greatest throws and it goes national almost every time because everybody wants to see Zach Wilson play right now. Right now, the current, you know, it's not viral, like a Twitter viral thing, but uh, projecting draft spots for Zach Wilson it's going crazy with page views because everybody, not just BYU fans, everybody wants to see Zach Wilson. So he's the MVP on the field and he's the MVP in our hearts because he creates page views, which as we all know, is the real objective of the internet. It is true. If you're not getting page views, nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Our offensive player of the year. Can't uh, be Wilson. It can't be Wilson. Cause he already took the MVP. Right. Um, I think we can each pick one and I'm confident and it doesn't matter who claims who one is going to be Tyler Algier and the other will be Dax Mill. Ooh, I disagree. Unless, or, or unless are you taking Brady Christensen? Yeah. Brady one. Christensen. Okay. That's, that's going to be my guy. And I would take Brady Christensen and I would take Tyler Algier. I love Dax Mill and he is special, but I think what, what BYU's offense proved this year is that it didn't matter whether it was Gunnar Romney or whether it was Neil Pau, who was wide receiver two that game, they were going to put up pretty similar numbers. Dax Milne put up crazy numbers, and he was the unquestioned wide receiver one. But had he been injured instead of Gunner, I think that their stats just get interchanged because Zach Wilson was that good. So because of that, I'm giving the nod to the running back, And Brady Christensen would have been my pick right behind Zach Wilson. Anyways, the guy, if you go and you set the pro football focus record for highest graded offensive left tackle ever ahead of Penny Sewell, you deserve to be the offensive player of the year. This is true. And I fell into the age old trap of only looking at the skill positions. You did. And and I agree with that. And we were talking so much about the skill positions. I it just completely slipped my mind. And I that is I don't know. You look skinny. Are you losing weight? Uh I'm working on it a little bit. Because you might be forgetting with the with the fat that's leaving your body, are you forgetting your fat brothers on the offensive line? No, I could never I could never I mean I wasn't I played offensive line in high school. Like I since clearly something's wrong. I mean it's I was mostly getting hopeful thinking, I mean, we spent so much time talking about Dex Mill and then thinking, looking forward and thinking about how, you know, what the new quarterback Tyler Algier is going to need to be the rock and the basis of the offense next year. And that's, I got ahead of myself speaking Oof. for both of us, but I think, yes, it's Brady. It definitely probably is the MVP. Well, he's the offensive player of the year. If I would have to say the offensive MVP, um, I would probably say Algier over Milne just because, you know, it's he, when he got going, it opened everything up, but even there were so many receivers that played well that he, it's like you could losing Algier would hurt more than losing Milne, probably Milne or 
Christensen. Cause even though Christensen was amazing, it's, we still had like, you could, we, there are still other tackles that you could put in there and play call around and kind of avoid because he's one of five versus being the guy. Yeah, that's um, fair. Um, so defensively, um, I would say, no, I defensive MVP. Defensive MVP is tough because it was different guys each year or each week who kind of stood up right or stood out it wasn't a oh here's fred warner or kyle van noy you know that's right like dominated every game i think that for me and and this so we're going to pick two and i'll let you kind of mold this over for me i'm going to go with the consistency factor why you needed somebody who would give a consistent performance week in and week out on that defense. The defense had a lot of players. They needed a leader. Troy Warner was that leader. We talked about him already. Uh, His grades, I think he was the highest graded starter on the defense. He was consistently very, very good in the back end BYU's defense. He he was great in coverage. He he was good enough against the run from the safety spot. Troy Warner was, was criminally underrated uh, by BYU fans this year. And I get it. It's because he played safety and, and safety's just not the position that people get to see when they watch games on TV. But, but Troy Warner was very, very good. And I'm a big fan of what he did. Uh, the, maybe the most impressive stat about Troy Warner, he was targeted 24 times in the past game from the safety spot. So usually he's not in direct coverage, right? targeted 24 times in the past game only gave up 12 receptions half of the time that he was the primary defender on a pass he broke up the play that's huge that is great numbers from a safety uh so because of that i i'm going with troy warner as my guy for uh, defensive player of the year my defensive player of the year is going to be you know, someone who he really changed the feel and the course of the Houston game. And really from then, that's when fans really started noticing him more. That'd be Zach Dahl, who he was the highest rated, well, he was the highest rated defensive starter um, on Pro Football Focus. Um, he, the only, he was the second highest overall. Saleti Favelioki, um was rated higher, but he played in about, you know, a sixth of the snaps just because he was hurt and didn't come and start playing more till the end of the year. But Zach Dahl was the most consistent and highest performing defensive lineman. And he, you know, he had 23 hurries, um, which was great. He only had three sacks, which is obviously something we'd like to have more, but it's, um, he had also chipped in three batted balls and he was just very solid and reliable all year at that defensive line spot. And he was the most consistent defensive lineman. Uh, yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I, I think that he was great. Other worthy contenders, I mean, Keenan Feely, Peyton Wilgar, uh, you would have got no arguments from me uh, having them as the defensive player of the year. Uh, I, I wish I could give it to Kairos Tonga, but I just can't. There were just too many times that, I, like I said, like we said at the beginning, it wasn't that he just didn't make an impact. It was that teams had to scheme around him, and they did. And I, I think that that's the difference. It's, you know, if you think of a, you think of a player like Jimmer now, obviously it's basketball and Jimmer is Jimmer, but think of Jimmer. Like he was always schemed around and he still found different ways to impact the game. Uh, everybody remembers him shooting from half court and just, you know, threes all day long. The dude was able to make a lot of free throws. He was able to get to the line a ton 
he was able to get to the cup a lot and had a lot of layups. He, he was always adjusting his game. So it didn't matter what the scheme was. He was able to make an impact on the game. Kairos Tonga's, he just didn't show me that level yet. Uh, when he was not the focal point of the offense, he absolutely blew up the game. When he was the focal point of the offense and they schemed around him, he was unable to adjust his game so that he could still have an impact. And that is why I can't quite give it to Tonga. Agreed. And it's, I think if you're looking at someone who's, you know, people say, oh, he's going to be a second, third round pick. It doesn't matter if they scheme around you, you're making plays. That's yeah. what gets you into that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, our offensive unsung player of the year. So unsung hero of the year. Who's the guy that just did not get enough love or appreciation for what they did or how they played? on the offense? Uh, it's probably Neil Pau. I mean, I think- everybody was talking about Dax. Everybody's talking about Gunner. Uh, Neil Pau, he finished with numbers that he would have been, he had better numbers than Micah Simon last year. And let's all remember how good Micah was for BYU last year. Uh, Neil Pau was better than that. And nobody's really talking about him. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, because everyone knows that Lapini Katoa is good and he obviously is the number two back, right? It's you know, and Brady Christensen, everybody, Zach. Everybody Wilson, talked Tyler about Isaac Algier. Rex. Right. Um, so I yeah, it's it would probably I think I would have to go either with Neil Pau or going back to the offensive line of um, you know, Blake Freeland really coming into his own as a tackle and really providing where it's Zach didn't have to worry about either side of the ball. Right. It's and, true. And, and Freeland did kind of, he did split reps with Harris Lachance. Um, and so there was some back and forth there, but both of those guys, um, you know, Blake Freeland really being into where, you know, with Tristan Hodge leaving, possibly Shannon Herring likely leaving. Um, and Shannon Herring was all over the place too. Like it's you, as that Shannon Herring played more snaps than anyone else on the team, except for Brady Christensen and um, Zach Wilson. Like that, yeah, he was everywhere, and he. So it's. I think it's probably actually. You know, it's probably Herring just because he plugged in so many places. But otherwise, you know, Blake Freeland because he's going to be the guy that the offensive line is really built around next year. Be him and Empey holding it down on the and defense. You, you can't give the award to Empey. You brought him up, so I got to talk right. about. You, you can't, can't give it to him because he didn't play enough. But you could see when he was out of the lineup, the offensive line was different. Like yeah. he is the unsung player because it's like, yeah, dude, you take him out and it went down a notch like Connor page. Joe took off who they did. It, they did great. You know, they did as well as you could hope for, but it was clearly not James Embiid. Yeah. Uh, um, I think, yeah. Well, and everyone knows James MP. Everyone expects yeah. him yep. to be an NFL guy. And then on the defense, my defensive pick is going to be George Udo. And that's someone he doesn't, I mean, fans, you see his athleticism and they know, like you see him play, and, you know, but I don't think people realize like just consistently how good he was. Like he was the fifth highest rated player overall on the defense. And, you know, his performance was right up there with Troy Warner um, in terms of all of his numbers across the board. And he, but his athleticism, especially when he came on and kind of came into his own um, and it sucks that he did, that he tore his ACL and is going to have to spend this off season rehabbing um, that he, like he really came into his own and it it's, he's the kind of body that like you were saying that frees it up to play more man coverage where he can run with anyone and he can play with anyone and he does not get enough love. 
especially doing that as a freshman. Yeah, he, he was special, and especially doing that as a freshman who was replacing a great Chaz Ayu. Uh, he came in with huge shoes to fill and he did really well. Uh, I like the Udo pick a ton. Uh, if, you, if you're picking Udo, I'll go Bracken. Bracken El Bakri was just consistent. Uh, his play isn't, you know, he wasn't going to, he's not going to go to the NFL because of his play, but he did exactly what BYU needed him to do week in, week out, stayed healthy, was on the field as much as any defensive lineman that was on the roster. And, Given the injuries to guys like Zoe and, and Nisa Mahe and even Alden Tofa, Uriah was slow coming back. BYU needed somebody who could stay healthy. They needed that innings eater, right? Like every every baseball team needs that fifth starter that you can just count on to go and get six or seven innings. He may not win the Cy Young, but he's going to save your bullpen. That was kind of Bracken El Bakri for BYU this year. He came in, he, he did his job, he did it well enough, and, and he did it every game. And that was huge for BYU. I agree. Um, he, I like the innings eater comparison. That's spot on. Uh, who is your coach of the year? Steve Clark, without question. Without question. Okay. Without question. There were a lot of impressive coaching performances. Steve Clark is the most overlooked coach on this staff. okay let's not bring his physical stature into this <laughs> it's true he is like five two and some of those pictures that, that like byu photos tweets out where the it's like him talking to zach and they have the camera angle a little bit low zach looks like goliath like he towers over coach clark no coach clark though remember okay like we were high on isaac rex you and i were a long time ago but remember the feelings, the general feelings of the fan base mid-August. When Matt Bushman went down, it was, oh, no, now what? Now, obviously, there were a lot of things that happened. Like a lot of players stepped up. Tyler Algier was great. Zach Wilson was elite. Dax Mill, Gunnar Romney played incredibly well. So there were a lot of players that stepped up. But when Bushman went down... One of the biggest concerns because of how BYU struggled in the red zone last year was who is going to emerge and help BYU's red zone issues. And if that wasn't Isaac Rex, I, I mean, that was exactly what he did. He came in and was an elite red zone target. He was also an elite blocker. Carter Wheat proved that if it weren't for Isaac Rex, BYU would have probably still been just fine at the tight end position. He showed that he has hands. He showed that he can block. He showed that he can make a, a difference in the red zone. At some point, these tight ends that continue to come in, whether it be Bushman, whether it be Holker, whether it be Isaac Rex, whether it be Carter Wheat, at some point, these tight ends who continually come in, get plugged into the lineup, and are all of a sudden making waves, you have to give credit to the coach. Hank Tui Pelotu, before he tore his ACL, like the reviews out of camp were like great. At some point, we have to give credit to the coach. And then all of that, I mean, we're, this is talking about this year, but all of that aside, like the on-field performance aside, he went out and he beat out Tennessee, Virginia, and some really good programs to sign, Bentley Redden. He's got BYU in the mix for guys like Carson Ryan and Carson Gay next year. Every year, Coach Clark is pulling 
at least one, sometimes two tight ends who have power five offers, and he is bringing them into the BYU mix. Coach Clark is the coach of the year for me this year, but he is the coach of the year for really the last several years. The guy is special, and probably because he's 5'2", and he doesn't look like a football coach, he kind of gets forgotten about. But that dude can coach, and it's time to start giving him the respect that he deserves. And that I can't really top that, but I was going to uh, since you took <laughs> Steve Clark, I, I have to go with Harvey Unga. And you know, it was a lot of people were really worried when um, you know, when Devontae Henry Cole transferred out and it was kind of like, oh, we're down to, you know, we got Tyler Algiers moving back to offense. Like, oh my gosh, the cupboard is so bare. We got to move guys from defense back to offense. We're switching positions to build up running back depth. And it didn't matter who was in there this year. And it's, well, he did go out and they got Hinkley Rapati in, figured out a way to make him, you know, get him in the door for 2020. He got hurt, but that's after the fact, right? It was, and having what he did with Tyler Algier and Lapini Katoa, where you could just feel a difference in their rushing style and how hard they were running and how aggressive the running backs were. Like, did you realize that Tyler Algier is his rushing grade on PFF He's the number three overall running back in the country this year. Like yeah, it's pretty impressive. And it's from, oh, like it's, he was just very consistent and it didn't matter. Like even miles Davis gets back there. You hand him the ball and Jackson McChesney for the two quarters. We saw him against Navy before he got hurt. Right. Like it didn't matter who was back there. Similar to the tight end group where it was, it didn't matter who was back there. They looked like they were running hard and they were moving their feet and they were, initiating contact with people and making plays. And so uh, my coach of the year, I'm going to go with Harvey Unga. Um, and our pl- play of the year, the play of the year for me has much as fun as seeing Lopini Katoa go full parallel diving for that catch against in the bowl game. The play of the year for me has to be the Dax Milne touchdown throw on third and 15 of just, I'm going to throw it over the top of this NFL corner. And I don't care. Like, I don't care that it's third and 15. I don't care against, that the guy is against uh, Houston. Is that uh, the one you're yeah, talking about against Houston? I don't care. That's third and 15. I don't care that we're only up by three and we really need a touchdown. Like we definitely need to get some kind of points here. I don't care that the guy is a half an inch away from you. I don't, I'll fit it in there. doesn't matter. Thread that needle. And it was just the perfect route. Everything about it. Like that still is the play without, I think back of, I'm like, man, cause that was where, I mean, cause we were up 29 to 26 at that point and then ended up or 26 to 23 and then ended yep. up winning 42 to 23 and just blowing out in that fourth quarter. And that throw, I think for me is when I really felt like, okay, this is like, both of these kids, like this is big time, right? Like that it's, it was just the attitude and not necessarily like that. It was the best throw. Cause obviously Zach had tons of great throws and touching hedge, but everything just wrapped up in the moment of the down, the distance, where it was at in the game, how the flow of the game had gone. And then just the audacity to say, I don't care. I'm going to go here with it because I expect to win was that everything was wrapped up in that throw for me. Uh, I like that pick. Um, and that throw really was great. That throw was kind of like, uh, Zach's touchdown pass to Gunner against Louisiana Tech that was just on a frozen rope 
and and very few it looks like an innocent pass if you don't look at it but then when you start to really like rewind it and look at it two or three times it's like oh my gosh that was that was a legit throw like most college quarterbacks don't make that throw a lot of nfl quarterbacks can't make that throw and zach made it look really easy that's kind of like it sounds like you feel the way about that houston throw that i feel about that throw uh for me the play of the year I think the Chiefs play was the funnest play to watch just because it was so unique and you don't see BYU run plays like that. But I go with uh, Wilson's touchdown pass to Pau against UTSA that really proved to be important because that game was a just a slobber knocker of a game where BYU didn't have their best stuff. They, they struggled to, to close out some drives. They had a couple turnovers. But that little loft pass that I don't know how Neil Pau was able to get a foot down with three guys around him right on the back of the end zone. That was a pretty special play that kind of gets overlooked, but in like BYU was trailing. I mean, it was early. I think it was the first or second early in the second. It was late first, early second quarter, but BYU was losing at that point in the game. And, and it was an ugly game. Like that UTSA game was ugly. And that kind of turned the tide a little bit to where it was an ugly game but there was never a question of whether BYU would win. And I, I give that play a lot of credit and it was just a, an unbelievable catch and throw. So for me, that's the play of the year. There's so many, we could do a top 50 plays. The really BYU good. TV did that top hundred plays. We could probably do top hundred plays of 2020. Gunner, um, Gunner's catch against, I think it was La Tech. The first, yeah, the first ball that he had that was ruled down like at the inch line. Uh, where Zach was rolling out and Christensen had totally annihilated the defender and taken him so far out of the play that when Zach Wilson rolled back to run out of the pocket and scramble, you know, 15 yards behind the line of scrimmage, that was where Brady had thrown his defender to. So all of a sudden Zach had to adjust and threw a ball on just an absolute dime to Gunner when somebody was draped all over him and Gunner somehow not only came down with the ball, but got a foot in that play was unbelievable. There were so many there. I'm there's probably, if I, I need to rewatch all the games just to see and, you know, recount all of them because there are so many. Um, So that, that concludes our Coogies. Um, We do have our two picks left. And then next week we will go, I'll go through this weekend. We will see whose bankroll was larger um going over the course of the season the the national championship will just be like our final jeopardy that's true it will be um so we'll see where we're at and so alabama is a 19 and a half point favorite versus notre dame and clemson is a seven and a half point favorite versus ohio state i think we all know well i justin fields has been playing i think we're going to see alabama clemson part six (laughs) i think we will too and I, uh, the only question is, does Alabama win by 20 or does Notre Dame get a garbage touchdown late? I think I take Alabama to cover 19 and a half. Like they're just, they're too good. I think I would take it Bama by 21. So it's, I think 21 and a half would be my cutoff of where uh-huh. I would not feel comfortable, but I, I'm taking Bama and I'm taking the Tigers. Um, you know, I think they, I, they've just looked even better this year than they had more last year. And that when the offense is clicking and how they in Trevor Lawrence is just playing at another level. I'm going to go with Ohio state to cover. I, I think Clemson wins. If it was seven instead of seven and a half, would you take Clemson? 
Uh, I'd think about it, but even then, I, I think Ohio State keeps it a little bit closer. Uh, I, I feel like it's going to be one of those games that the score at the end of it, and when you look back in two years from now, it's like, oh, yeah, that was a one-score game. It's never going to feel like Ohio State has a chance to win, but I think that the Buckeyes are able to stay with Clemson for the most part, and it ends up being like a 31-27 type game. That's my projection. Okay. So we got both Bama and then split on split on Clemson and Ohio State. And that is our episode for today. It's our last episode of the year. We'll be Happy back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. And especially we're going to bring back, we haven't done a Hellion of the Week in a while because you all have not been, you know, we have not been getting nominations, but I am going to nominate Barstool President Sport. The head, the president of Barstool Sports, one at El Presidente, Dave Portnoy, as our Hellion of the Week for starting the Barstool Fund. If you have not been following that at all, it's been just incredible response and super awesome and fun to see. Basically, in very Portnoy fashion, um, he got online and said, Congress is stupid. They're not doing anything. I'm going to do something about it. And now they, well, they're, as we are recording this, they're about to take over $14 million collected in donations. And from 116,000 people, 51 businesses have been supported. They're soliciting basically applications for grants to keep the doors open. He's saying you have to, he's, you know, he's to be, he wants small businesses who are doing everything they can to make payroll. If the owner is using their own money and their own savings to make payroll for their employees, that's the people they want to help. And he's been posting all these videos of him FaceTiming these people to, you know, talk to them and tell them that they were, you know, that they were, except that they're, I guess, selected uh, to be funded. And so they're going to keep the doors open as long as they can. And he has been personally attacking people to go get funding for them. So he said a couple last week, he was like, if you're my, if you're rich and I consider you my friend, it's not, if it's when I will come after you. So donate now before I publicly shame you into donating. Good for him. I, I love what he's doing. I love that he called out Darren Ravel. That's maybe my favorite part uh, is that Darren Ravel, he, <laughs> what did he say to him? He said like, Hey Ravel, I hear that you're cheap. This is a good chance to prove people wrong. And then Ravel replied in just Ravel fashion and said, I spend my charitable efforts on my mental, uh, like my mental health charity or something or other. And then Portnoy went on a rant about how Ravel is the worst. And then some guy from Ravel's Action Plus Network was like, Dave, I can't believe that you're trying to shame a Jewish person into donating on Christmas. Dave is Jewish, so it was really kind of a stupid comment, but the guy got, you know, he, he was going nuts about it. And so then Portnoy tagged the Action Plus Network and said, hey, somebody at Action Network, come and bail out your company before I shred them. And all of a sudden, the CEO or the founder or something said, Dave, love what you're doing. Here's a big donation. And then you saw like $25, $50 donations from Ravel and this other guy. Like clearly the owner of the company said, hey, you morons, just donate a little bit of money to this, this charity. And the best part, so all of that was great. But then the best part was when Ravel replied and said, 
okay, Dave, now what will you donate to my charity? And, and Re Portnoy's reply was fabulous. And he just said, well, how much are you willing to match? And it was like the perfect, like Tiger Woods. I remember when the, like the first match between Tiger and Phil, they were talking about the money and Tiger just said, I'm willing to bet whatever number Phil is comfort comfortable with of just kind of like this slap in the face. And that's what Portnoy did of like, I, I will donate whatever you are willing to also donate, Darren. How about that? I just loved it. I loved yeah. everything about that. And if he, the videos that he's been posting have been awesome. And so it all started with, he said something about it. And then Marcus Limonis, like the host of the prophet and the CEO of camping world and outdoor world. He, um, he like quote tweeted it and was like, if you do something, I'll match like $500,000. He was like, like Dave said something. And then about needing to do something. And Limonis was like, I'll match $500,000. Like basically you do something, you put your money where your mouth is Dave. And Dave was like, okay, fine. I'll do it. And then now he's been going after people like Tom Brady or no, it was like Travis Kelsey donated. And then he went through and was like, got a hundred thousand dollars from Travis Kelsey. Where, where are you? And like tagged Gronk and like every other tight end in the NFL. And then Tom Brady donated. And so he's like, Tom Brady did it. Where are you? Drew Brees. And like, you know, Marcus, Barrett, like every other random quarterback in the NFL is like just publicly pestering people to pitch in. And I think it's awesome. And it's just been super fun to watch. So if you haven't donated or haven't seen in, you know, anything about it, go check out his timeline or go to barstoolsports.com slash or the dash barstool dash fund or go to their homepage. But and one of the there. coolest things is what Dave has done. And this is what, like, say what you will about barstool sports. I respect the heck out of barstool sports because of their creativity not only is he is he going out and he has the barstool fund and that's where he's raising money and then they're basically subsidizing the businesses until the pandemic is over that's what's great is he's doing this it's not a one-time check he is partnering with these companies and saying hey we're with you until this thing is over and you guys are allowed to make your own money again so these companies are saying hey i need four thousand dollars a month i need twelve thousand dollars a month and dave is saying okay, we got you. And if this lasts until July, we got you until July, which I think is awesome. But he's also, this is what makes Barstool so great. They are uber creative in the way that they do things. And they have a, an, an entire store of, of merchandise. And now a lot of the merchandise, some of it is uh, stuff that, that Barstool has created to help provide some uh, publicity for the fund itself. But other things are, it's the actual merchandise of the companies themselves. And so these companies are trying to sell their own t-shirts or beanies or something like that. But if I'm unable to go to the local pizza, the pizza shop in Michigan, I can't go and buy a shirt. Well, Dave is allowing him to, or allowing these companies to sell their merchandise directly on Barstool's site that gets millions and millions of views a day. And when you buy a small business, big dreams hoodie, or when you buy a, the Abbey store t-shirt off of Barstool's website, 100% of the proceeds go back to the business that they are sponsoring. So he's got multiple avenues here that they've got some businesses that they're giving the, the, the checks to each month. They've got other businesses that they're allowing them to sell, uh, to sell shirts and things. And then he's announced a third avenue that they will go through that he's partnered with a GoFundMe-like company that he will 
put up individual campaigns and put Barstool's marketing behind it that if they can't pay for, you know, Garrett's company, they can't pay for Garrett Incorporated out of their Barstool fund. What they can do is say, hey, here's a quote unquote, go fund me for Garrett's company. They need $8,000 here, Barstool people. If this message resonates with you, go, no, go donate directly to Garrett's company. It's just amazing what he's done and the power, the reach that Barstool has and how they're using it for good. Barstool's had their you know share of bad publicity, and I know that there's a lot of people who aren't fans at all. But what Portnoy's doing with this is absolutely commendable, well worthy of our Hellion of the Week. Maybe even Hellion of the Year. And I will... Dave Portnoy, if you somehow listen to this, we want to <laughs> sell, send you a Hellion of the Year shirt because you are our MVP for facilitating the American dream for people all across the country. And if you need to add a a niche Mormon podcast into the bar school, the bar stool network, we are here and we will happily be bought out and we're very cheap. We are. So we, (laughs) the brand is for sale. We are cheap and available. And with that, Jeff, happy new year and give them hell. Give them hell.